Hello, dear listener, and welcome to this week's episode of Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast with me, Caroline Foran. This is a special and very necessary episode sponsored by Eon Next, the energy provider powering space for change in a mission to tackle eco-anxiety. The theme of this episode, it's just that, eco-anxiety, climate change anxiety, whatever you want to call it, it's essentially the fear of environmental doom. Lovely way to wake up in the morning, isn't it? It's that sense of frustration and hopelessness we experience when it feels like we're going to be totally unable to help stop climate change. It's been rising rapidly in recent years, especially amongst younger people, many of whom have understandable concerns about how a changing climate will impact their future. Now, while a lot of the anxieties I talk about on this podcast are more about perceived threats or things that we might even be imagining, anxiety about the future of our planet is totally valid. You are not crazy for feeling this anxious about something so real. It makes complete sense that we would be as worried as we are, and that anxiety is, in a way, vital in many instances. However, problems arise when it becomes debilitating, when it leaves us feeling paralysed. This can be especially dangerous as we feel there's nothing we can do. However, that is just not the case. For example, Eon Next's own Exploring Eco-Anxiety in Gen Z report gave me this little tidbit that 20% of CO2 comes from home energy, so we can even start in our own home and make a massive difference. You see, researchers have found that eco-anxiety predicts lower collective action. Why? Well, because it can cause so much stress, so much worry that we're unable to act and unable to get involved with climate action. And I have certainly felt this myself. We might think the easiest thing in the short term is to just turn a blind eye from our eco-anxiety and bury our head in the sand, but no. We need to first manage the anxiety that's the very real anxiety that we're feeling within ourselves and then know how to transform that or redirect those worries into action. For this conversation, I am so thrilled to be joined by someone who could not be more qualified for this episode. Her name is Caroline Hickman. She's a lecturer in social work and climate psychology at the University of Bath. She's a psychotherapist whose work spans far and wide, but one of her specialisms, which we'll be discussing today, is in eco-anxiety and how it manifests in young people globally, crucially also what we can do about it. She works with schools and youth activist groups offering talks and workshops about the climate and ecological crisis. Let me note at the outset that Caroline's advice here is all her own. It's informed by her own expertise and it's not from Eon Next directly. However, I am so grateful to them because they connected us and they put me in touch and they have enabled this conversation to happen. Before I jump into the chat, which I'm really looking forward to, I want to bring your attention to a really helpful tool for managing eco-anxiety that you will find in your podcast feed now as an add-on to this episode. It's a gorgeous mindfulness meditation designed to help soothe this particular anxiety in the moment that you're feeling it. And you know I'm all about the real-time ways to help anxiety. So save it and come back to it as often as you need. Caroline, thank you so much for joining me to help both myself and my listeners address this anxiety. To start, I would love to hear how you as an expert define eco-anxiety and how we can recognise or become more aware if it's something that's just a normal amount of worry when, say, we're just watching the news versus an anxiety that's really debilitating and impacting our day to day. Yeah, thank you. Well, I think it's really important to understand that eco-anxiety is an emergent mental health problem, but it is not a mental illness. You're not mentally ill. There's nothing wrong with you. In fact, it's an emotionally, mentally healthy response to the reality of what's going on in the world around you. We measure mental health by looking at our capacity to respond to external reality. And when you look around, you see glaciers melting, you see heat rising, you see flooding It's natural to be anxious, but it's not just anxiety. It's also depression, despair, anger, 
frustration, guilt, grief, shame, just preferably not all on the same day and all at the same time. We feel all of these things in response to what we see happening around us. I would simultaneously be quite worried about people that didn't have these emotional responses because I would think, well, what are you doing with your emotions? This is the reality of what's happening in the world around you. So people may have to shut their feelings down. I honestly don't think there's anyone on the planet that doesn't feel eco-anxiety, but some people may not be aware of it. They may not be conscious of it. They may be pushing it away, pushing it out of awareness, pushing it into their unconscious so that they can get on with life or because it's just too scary or they just can't bear it or they want to disbelieve it. But it's there in everybody now because the evidence, the facts that we've got cannot be disputed 20 years ago, people could say, well, maybe it's not that bad, or maybe we'll do something about it. Today, we can't afford to do that. So today we've got this situation where as humans, we're feeling threatened. And as soon as we feel threatened, we will go into a fight, flight, freeze or collapse response. We can either deny it or run away from it or pretend it's not really happening, we will have those responses triggered. When you focus that in on climate change, then it's impossible to dispute the fact that this is a really emotionally healthy response. The other aspect of this is it's not all about climate and the environment. We feel the anxiety, we feel the distress, but then we look around us and we think, well, why aren't people doing something? Why are people not running around? A 19-year-old said to me, why are people not running around the streets? You know, why isn't everyone taking action? Climate anxiety during COVID in young people got worse because they were looking at people's response to COVID and saying, well, hang on, climate anxiety, climate change is a worse problem. Why aren't we leaping into action, right? There's a logic to this. So what I always say to people when they say I've got climate anxiety, I say, I mean, I'm not so unkind as to say good, but I (laughs) definitely say, yeah, me too. Who wouldn't have? If you're alive and awake and you care, you would feel this and you should feel proud that you care. And so you should feel proud that you've got climate anxiety. It shows that you care about the world. You mentioned the spectrum when we were talking earlier about people thinking, oh, it's going to be fine. They're going to fix it. It's all going to work out okay versus we're all doomed and it's probably going to happen tomorrow. And that the reality is probably somewhere in the middle. Do you think, I know you said you wouldn't group people and say just this subset are anxious about it, but is it more, are you more likely to feel intensely overwhelmed by the situation if you are further down the line of believing that we really are facing um, doom if you're closer to that end of the spectrum, is anxiety be more likely? It's complicated. So we would be talking about people's capacity to tolerate uncertainty and to face reality. And we would be talking about the groups of people who are more climate aware. And what often goes with that is a broader, stronger social conscience generally. So people who are aware of injustice in the world, who are aware of unfairness in the world, but also people who've grown up with this awareness. So demographically, yes, we're often talking about younger people, but not exclusively. So people who are aware of our interconnection with what's happening elsewhere in the world will impact on me. 
And I also care about that. So that's one of the important things that I say to people. You're feeling eco-anxiety, you're feeling depression or despair because you care. So instead of labeling this as a mental health problem, instead of you worrying about your worrying, because people often get anxious about their anxiety or they get depressed about their depression. You know, people get anxious and then they go, oh, there's something wrong with me because I'm anxious or, oh, I'm this useless person because I'm depressed. And so we get this multiple layers of emotion around it. What I always say is actually you're feeling this because you care. So you should feel proud that you care rather than feel worried that you care. It's something to navigate and learn to live with and to live alongside because it's not going away. With other global threats, What the other thing that makes this very different is what we do to reassure ourselves is, and you heard this with communication around COVID or the war in Ukraine, when we get over this, when we get beyond it, when we get, when we beat it, when we vaccinate everybody, we can get back to normal, right? And this is how humanity reassures itself that we'll we'll be able to go back to normal. And you hear that in the messaging, we have to learn to live with COVID. The thing is, is the climate crisis, we can't get beyond it. So I'm going to say something really unpleasant now. So bear with me. And then I promise I'll say something nicer on the other side of it. But what I'm going to say is we can't prevent the climate crisis and biodiversity crisis now because we're not at the beginning of the story we're halfway through the story so trying to tell ourselves that when we get over it when we get beyond it when we get on the other side it'll all be all right won't work because it's already too late because of the amount of carbon in the atmosphere the amount of carbon that's already in the atmosphere means that even if and we won't but even if we went to zero carbon emissions tomorrow It's too late. Sea levels will keep rising. Heat will keep increasing because we're halfway through the story. Now, it's devastating to come to terms with that, to realize that, that it's too late to turn back the clock. And the other side of that is, of course, and there is so much more we can still do to stop it becoming even worse. But if we delude ourselves by saying, oh, we can fix this, then we're not facing the reality of what's going on. And I think children and young people, to come back to your original question, I am sorry, I do give circular answers. Oh, I love it. Children and young people frequently see through that. And they, you know, hang on a minute. Hang on. I've grown up knowing about this. A 10-year-old got really cross with me a few years ago. Quite right. And he said, Caroline, no, you don't get it. He said, you grew up thinking polar bears would be there forever. He said, I've grown up knowing they will go extinct. I've grown up knowing they will go extinct. He said, I know no different. That is my reality. So when you're talking about people maybe under the age of about 28, 29, 30-ish, I hate overgeneralizing, but you've grown up with this knowledge and this awareness. It's always been present for you, whereas older generations are having to wake up to it much more. Older generations are having to face the guilt of the fact that they didn't act sooner. Yeah. And I feel like, I mean, you talked about the the people who 
turn a blind eye or who, who the ones you should be worried about are the ones who don't have an emotional response to it. But I feel like it's so much easier in this day and age with media to really curate what you consume and just avoid it entirely. Unless, you know, we're not buying the papers like we used to and reading everything that was presented to us. We're, we're picking the things that interest us. Like I could have a news feed on my social media that's just you know, popular entertainment, you know, celebrity stuff. I could completely avoid it if I wanted to. And that's not good either because in, I guess the argument is for some people when it comes to like managing it in on their own as an individual, it's like, well, I can't take this on. So I'm just going to shield myself from the worry. So, so you're in, in a, you're kind of managing the anxiety in the short term, but you're avoiding the reality. And the only way around the anxiety is really to take action. It's really interesting the way you're putting that. So if we take each of those in turn, avoidance, if thinking that we can avoid it if we want to, is one of those things we say to comfort ourselves. And you're avoiding it consciously, but you're not avoiding it unconsciously. Human beings are not conscious creatures. We like to think we are. We like to think that we're completely in control. Our egos are like, yeah, I'm all over it. It's not the case. If you're not sure about that, just watch Pixar's Inside Out and that'll show the scale of the unconscious. It's huge. So even if we're not consciously aware of it, our bodies know what's going on. Our environment knows what's going on. The birds, the trees, the grass, the space in which we inhabit has an awareness of what's going on. So you can, you're right, you can have temporary avoidance. The problem is when it comes back, it comes back with a vengeance. So anything we've suppressed, anything we've pushed out of conscious awareness, when it comes back, it'll often come back much stronger. And then it threatens to overwhelm. And then we have to shut it down and push it away again. And then it'll come back. And then you're in that backwards and forwards. And the problem with this, Caroline, is you're you're at war with yourself. It's a civil war. Because who's going to win and lose this battle? You're going to lose because it's you fighting yourself. So you then fall into a kind of disbelief and you're no longer your own best friend to be a bit cliched about it. You're not helping yourself to navigate through this. So you can get temporary respite, but it doesn't work in the long term. As a long term strategy, it's absolutely lethal. And when it comes back, then you can crash and burn and then it's just overwhelm. Yeah. When people shut down their feelings, it's not that they're not feeling anything, it's they're feeling too much. Uh-huh. I think that's so true across the board with anxiety, not even just relating to eco-anxiety, that um, the avoidance strategy that is sort of beneficial short-term, but so disastrous long-term. To go back to how eco-anxiety shows up for people, I mean, if anyone reads the news, if they have a pulse, they're going to feel a bit anxious about it. But how can we recognize eco-anxiety that's really making us suffer what 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 are we looking out for is it going really catastrophizing but then again like the catastrophizing feels so warranted when you actually yes. read the news like, this is just such a catch-22 because every other anxiety you could say listen most of what you're feeling is wrapped up in anticipation it's future oriented it's probably based on opinion and not fact whereas with this you're looking at facts that can't be disputed and the anxiety is then growing arms and legs so yeah. How, how do you recognize? How do you how would how does it show up eco anxiety first? What does it look like in someone? And then we'll talk about what we can do about it. Yeah. 
I really like the way you put that. So it's lovely hearing you think about it and process that and give yourself permission at the same time to say, no, it really is that bad. And I think what you're demonstrating there is that relationship with the self that is needed to maintain that relationship, that communication about it whilst learning how to be with it. I was in a webinar online in the Philippines at the end of last year when just after we released our research last year and I had to present these research findings that were saying things like 92% of young people in the Philippines think that humanity is doomed and I was thinking how am I going to show up and give those statistics and not look like an idiot and not sound like awful and I just said sorry quite a lot um, but they opened with a brilliant question, which was, is it okay to not be okay about the climate crisis? And we all said, yes, it's okay to not be okay. And I think what this is doing is this is teaching us. I don't want to start saying there's good things coming out of this, but I think it gives us opportunities. And one of those opportunities is the opportunity to relate to trauma and distress and difficulty in the world in a wiser way. Okay, and it's that lack of wisdom that has got us into this mess in the first place. So back to your question. Yes, it's the climate and it's the biodiversity crisis that triggers these emotions. But it's not that that causes the worst hurt or the worst pain or the worst distress. What causes the worst distress is the fact that people are not taking action on this and that people don't understand other people's distress. So I've been talking with people about this for 10 years. And a few years ago, my original profession was social work, and I've done a lot of work with people following trauma. And a few years ago, I started thinking, you know what, I'm hearing people talk about the climate crisis and climate anxiety in the same way as I hear people talk about trauma in relationships. The very people that have hurt me are the people who are supposed to be protecting me. The very people who are telling me not to worry are also the people who are contributing to the problem. So what you're leaving people with is this breakdown in trust in relationships. The people who are supposed to be looking after us. Now, now what are you, whatever your politics, it's not, this is way beyond politics. We elect governments to care. We expect them to look after us. We want our parents to care. Even if they don't always, we still want them to. We look to leaders, we look to head teachers, we look to social workers, we look to nurses, we look to doctors, we look to psychiatrists. We want these people to show us care and help us deal with these difficult things. The problem is, is when governments and people in power, and particularly big business, are failing to be honest, failing to act on this, it leaves us with this lack of trust, this breakdown of trust and feeling that we're abandoned. And this is why we started to recognize that actually the climate anxiety is a form of moral injury rather than a psychiatric problem. It's people not looking after us and being dishonest and communicating badly about this and dismissing our concerns out of the research we did last year with 10,000 children and young people in 10 different countries with 67% telling us they were anxious, 27% thinking governments could be trusted, you know, 
devastating statistics. The one that stands out above all else, and I promise not to bore you with too many figures, but the one that stands out is 48% of this 10,000 young people sold us. When they tried to talk about how they felt about climate anxiety, they were dismissed or ignored. That is damaging. That is immoral. That is wrong. We should never be shutting other people down when they try and talk about how they feel or what they think, even if we can't relate to it or agree with it. And that's, again, true. Whatever you're, whatever kind of anxiety you're experiencing, that's just going to shut someone down and make it, you know, grow bigger. So, I mean, from what you're saying there, it sounds like a really healthy place to start is to not or to try to stop thinking there's something wrong with you for feeling this anxiety, that it makes complete sense. Validate yourself. Know that it's it's very warranted and that it's not coming from within you. It's an external, like you say, it's the feeling that our internal resources cannot match the demands put on us externally when you actually look at the situation. So if we start with acceptance of not like that guy said, is it okay just to not be okay with it? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's probably, you You will just spin out of control if you don't allow yourself the permission to just bring this anxiety along with you and then use it to almost propel you forward into making this, the, the small yet significant individual changes that you can make. So would you agree that acceptance of it is is the first, I, for me, it's always the first step with any kind of anxiety? I would absolutely agree. But I want to add to that. I absolutely agree. I think you've just put that beautifully. But I want to talk about radical acceptance rather than a sort of, and I know you don't mean it this way, but often when people hear the word acceptance, they think, oh, you know, like I have to be Gandhi. I have to just accept everything. Yeah. And be, yeah. And be peaceful. No, (laughs) we're talking about radical acceptance and it's very closely related to radical hope. The argument about radical hope, which is, I don't like this. I don't accept this, but I have to find a way to be okay with it. The world may be going off a cliff, but we're going to go down fighting and there is a lot we can do and we have to extend the concern and the empathy and the compassion on a planetary scale as well as locally. So you're absolutely right with those small things we can do, but we have to take action locally and planetary scale, because if we just try and focus on the local, people have fantasies about, you know, moving to a remote Scottish island or Iceland or New Zealand, it'll be okay there. No, it won't, right? There's nowhere on the planet that will be untouched by this. So you can't comfort yourself with that one either, I'm afraid, sorry. But what you can do is live with honesty and integrity and courage, emotional courage of knowing that you're doing all you can. Barack Obama, when he put his climate action plan together in 2015, said our children in the future are going to look back at us and ask, did we do all we could do? Now, I like that wording because it doesn't mean you've got to be perfect. It doesn't mean you've got to do absolutely everything. We're all completely imperfect around this, but there is always more we can do. So radical acceptance, radical hope, absolutely. And the other thing is to keep in mind a balance between internal activism and external activism. Uh, 
So the internal activism is learning to regulate your emotions around this. Give yourself permission to not feel okay about it always. Have this acceptance, have the altruism, have the care. A little bit of humor helps because, you know, humor can really help us find a way through difficult times but also take action externally. So you need both because otherwise you can't sit and meditate your way through this. No, but equally you can't just go out there and do external activism because you will burn out. So you really need to move between them. So for someone listening who is maybe unlike myself, you know, I have a two-year-old at home. I feel stretched at the best of times. And sometimes, like I say, it just feels like just, too enormous for me to try and think of today. So I say, okay, I'll I'll deal with that tomorrow. We have to maybe start with beyond the radical acceptance, start with the things that are tangible for us. And we know that 20% of CO2 comes from home energy. And that's one really significant way to lower your carbon footprint. What what are the small things or the, the the entry ways to start with giving yourself, giving back that sense of like, I'm, I am, I'm not passive. I am doing something about this every day to start to take that back, back that sense of control, like you say, which we severely lack in this situation. Yeah. Not so easy with a two-year-old, really hard. Even very young children are quite knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. So I would encourage people to, tackle this as a family issue sit down with your children on a regular basis don't save it up and say we're going to talk about this you know in a month's time and have your teenagers roll their eyes at you you know sit down and have regular conversations about this this is the reality of what we're facing what can we do as a family and i want you to go and research it i want you to come back with ideas I think putting children at the centre of how you as a family group navigate this can be really powerful and really effective. And I think parents need to acknowledge with children quite often that you don't have all the answers. You can be just as scared, but you will find a way through it together. So you need a we approach to it rather than a you and I separately. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I would I would enlist children, even young children, and say, Go research this and come back with ideas that we as a family can take on together. And it can be as small as do we buy biscuits that have palm oil in them? Make a choice about the biscuits you buy, the milk that you buy. Your consumer choices as a family can have huge significance. So it's about extending that care to those small choices. They make a big difference. Children's comics with plastic toys on the cover huge problem in the world you know single-use plastics thinking about recycling thinking about which toilet paper you buy makes an enormous difference i feel like people don't believe that it that it is a significance that it will make a difference i mean you saying that to me gives me great sense of comfort because you are an expert in the field but i just think people will so often think what's the point anyway what difference is it going to make if i buy palm oil nutella today well i would say start from the you're human it's not going to make a huge difference if you end up buying a packet of biscuits with palm oil or nutella once in a while but if consistently you don't change your consumer habits it will make a big difference so let yourself off the hook everyone needs a night on the sofa in front of the tv with pizza right it's actually mentally healthy 
But every night? No. It's not going to be so good for you, right? So I think it's about getting this balance so that you're making these small incremental changes and you let yourself off the hook having to be perfect. But don't give up hope of these small things do make a difference. So again, you're having to kind of balance that up and have that compassionate conversation with yourself. You don't have to be perfect, but equally, you don't have to just say you don't care. Because if you say you don't care, then your children are going to turn around to you in a few years and say, why didn't you care? So care, but don't drive yourself with perfectionism. It's such a such a good point. And I love the analogy there about the your well-being and your and your diet and your nutrition that obviously balance is key um or everything in moderation but if we look to our imprint on the world in terms of and uh, not just to today but all of the days what choices can we make that is a pa- a good healthy pattern overall and forgiving ourselves and allowing ourselves the occasional slip up or you know things that we I think there's a tendency as well with people to and I have felt this where I started um, last year I took on a challenge where I decided I was going to one area that I thought I could make a difference in my own day-to-day life was to just stop buying so many clothes because I'm in a world where it's constantly advertised to me on social media that all these hauls and you have to have 25 pieces in your wardrobe for spring and summer and autumn and everything has to change all the time and I was feeling mentally, mental health wise a lot of pressure from it but also just like this cannot this is not sustainable it cannot go on and then I would share, you know, my efforts that I was making. It's like I was, I'm only allowed to buy one item a month if I have to. Um, but then someone would comment and say, yeah, but I saw you got on an airplane. So how can you, you know? So, and then I started to feel like, whoa, it's actually, if if I feel like my small things, if I, if I have to be like 100% sustainable and living as an eco-warrior in every way, I think that fear of having to be perfect will make people go the opposite way and do nothing. I think we have to allow for our, you know, being in our fallibility, if that's the right word, and aim for good enough and not perfection. Otherwise, the anxiety would become dangerous. It would stop us from doing anything. I really like talking with you. You have such great ways of thinking about this. Um, Right, I've got a number of things to say. Um, and I know you're editing, so you can just edit out anything you don't want. You use the phrase good enough. Brilliant. Do you know where that came from? That came from Donald Winnicott, who was a child psychiatrist, and he coined the phrase good enough mothering. And what people think good enough parenting or good enough anything is, is that you don't just make a real mess of it, right? You just stay on the right side of doing it well that's not what it means what it actually means is you have to fail you have to make mistakes you have to get stuck you have to be human and imperfect sometimes so what he developed that term to think about was this is what infants and babies need from parents they need their parents to care enough to try and get it right But you also have to fail your infant, your child, sometimes, because otherwise the child will not build resilience. The child has to have you get it wrong sometimes. Go and feed them when they actually want to be cuddled or go and cuddle them when they want their nappy changing. And what the child needs is that experience in relationship. 
of you trying to get it right, getting it wrong, and then fixing it. So you say, oh, I'm sorry, you wanted this, I did that, I'm sorry, let me fix it. That builds emotional resilience and emotional uh, intelligence, and it allows the child to build trust. Trust in you, trust in themselves, they will survive. So we wonder about, you know, children that aren't resilient, and it's because they've never had that failure. A young activist a couple of years ago said to me, how do you develop resilience, Caroline? I don't think she liked my answer. I said, you fail. You get it wrong. You fall over. You make mistakes. You get back up. You try again. Then you fail. Then you get back up. Then you try again. Then you fail again. So I'm saying you've actually got to get it wrong. It's not about being fallible. It's about being human. And I do think that we have a terrible problem of thinking of ourselves as human doings rather than human beings you know to be human is essentially to be imperfect but it's about how we then deal with that imperfection and what we can do with that imperfection is use it as a form of empathy to care about other people you failing makes me feel so much better because i'm failing which will make somebody else feel so much better and then we get back up and we try again and it's that process of keep trying which builds the resilience builds the emotional intelligence and keeps us moving. Michael Jordan, the basketball player, is famous for saying, you know, I missed 10,000 shots while I was training. Everyone remembers the winning shot. No one remembers all those failures. But if you don't go through those failures, you don't learn how to do the winning shot. So that's the first thing. I want to talk about the displaced anxiety and attacks on you about the aeroplanes and about (laughs) the clothes, because this is so important. I'm so glad you said this. So this is defensiveness. So we need to understand people's defenses. And what people will do is they will displace. This is classic displacement. And people do it all the time. They're like, oh, well, just go to China and campaign in China or stop printing books because they're on paper or well, you're being, you know, amazing about the clothes, but yeah, you just got on an aeroplane. What they're doing is they're displacing their frustration and trying to move the goalposts. And you just don't fall for it. You're like, yeah, sure. Yeah, I am making choices. And it's a conscious choice. And I chose to do this and I chose to do that. You know, don't displace. Don't try and camouflage your anxiety about climate change by attacking me in a different way what we've got a big problem with is disavowal and displacement around climate change not pure denial very few people are going to go for pure denial really nowadays we're slightly beyond that thankfully but people have moved on to displacement and disavow and what that means because we don't want this to be true right neither you nor i want this to be real we would like to have our lives without this in our lives we're human absolutely but what people do instead is they go to this kind of softening fear of disavow which says oh the climate crisis is really worrying and i'm doing my recycling but oh thank heavens covid's over and we're flying in because i want to go to new york to go shopping for christmas and you think oh how can all those things exist in the same brain and what we're doing is we're moving our anxiety into something where we rationalize and we move the anxiety away from ourselves and then we blame and then we shift it onto somebody else The trick is not to fall for it and just bring it back to, yeah, 
it is a problem and there is a lot we can do. And you just don't let people displace that guilt and grief and shame. Don't let them shame you because every small thing you do is worth doing. It's right? so true. One more thing. I'm okay. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so, I'm like, I have to say this. One of the key things to do here is recognize when people's defenses are triggered. When people's defenses are triggered, they will attack or they will tell you that it doesn't make a difference or what's the point or, you know, it's okay for you because you can afford to do it. I can't afford to do it. There's a million ways in which people defenses will be used to try and silence you. The key thing to do is seed bomb their defences. Seed bombing is when we get a little ball of clay or soil and we put flower seeds in it and we throw it into the verges and we throw it into the fields and some of those seeds grow and some of them don't. So seed bomb people's defences. Just throw things over the defensive walls and say, it's okay, I know this is scary, we're all scared, but look, we all need to do stuff together, don't we, right? If we work together, we'll be stronger. And I understand you can't do everything. Anyway, would you like a cup of tea? What would you like for dinner? So you chuck it over the wall and move on. And that way, some of those ideas will take root and they will flower. And people will come back to you later and say, I've been thinking about what you said. Give people space and they'll come back to you. Mm-hmm. So many interesting um, ideas there. I'm really curious to know, you know, you're working in this you have such a focus uh, on on eco-anxiety, the, the kind of Venn diagram between psychology and what's happening in the world. But what do you do? What are, I mean, what practically do you do that you feel you're happy with in terms of the changes you can make as an individual? But also crucially, you know, you're, because you're so entrenched in this world, you're obviously going to be consuming like a lot of stats, a lot of facts that a lot of us could probably not confront in our day-to-day how do you stop yourself from spiraling how do you handle your own eco-anxiety well I use it to motivate myself to care about other people and to bring me into relationship with other people I want to have these conversations with people because it makes so it's a person I'll give you a personal response and a professional response. So at a personal level, it means I don't feel lonely. I'm not alone. We have a connection. We have an, a shared empathy around this. It gives me that shared connection and empathy with young people that I'm working with and care about all over the world, in Nigeria, in Canada, in Bangladesh, in the Maldives. And they're so inspiring. And they're taking action whilst often on the front line in the Philippines, the Maldives, Nigeria. They're so inspiring that I'm just so impressed with them and so proud of them. And when I feel scared, I think about them and I think, well, I have to just keep getting up and getting on with it because they are, and I want to be alongside them. So there are times I just feel overwhelmed and scared, but I think about children and young people and think, no, come on, you know, get on, get out there. Um, and I want to make a difference in these conversations, these relationships. So it feels like I can make a difference in that respect. I want to support children and young people in getting their voices heard. So that really helps. How could I live with myself if I didn't? 
right? I'm living at this moment in history. I might not like it, but it is my duty to do everything I possibly can do. And it's a moral duty and it's a spiritual duty and it's an emotional duty and it's a relational duty to do my best. And if I can keep doing that imperfectly, perfectly imperfectly, then it's kind of okay. Mm -hmm. I also have a 15-month-old puppy. My sister said, get a terrier. It'll be good for you. Thank you. You know, <laughs> Mr. Bitey, he's been known as. I still have the wounds to show for it. And he reminds me that there's other things that are also really important, like walking in the woods, squeaky tennis balls, feeding Wilfred, playing with Wilfred. So if I get lost and immersed in the work, you know, his the center of his world is a squeaky tennis ball, right? So he reminds me I have to be grounded in that. I have to clean my house. I have to care about those things. And that can be a very sort of powerful way of navigating the world. The world is still here and it's still beautiful and relationships are still important. So we have to be able to have one sense of here I am today living in the here and now. And here's my concern about the future, but I have to have both. So it's a both and approach rather than a either or you don't want to just live in the present and not worry about the future equally you don't want to just live in the future and not worry about the here and now so it's both so it's such a good point and such a a, the key takeaway that i hope people will 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 take from from this super helpful episode i feel like we've really extensively covered the emotional side of it and how to handle yourself and turn it into action or use it that like you say as proof that you care and that's a good thing we don't want people not to be anxious about this but I'd love to just include from you as an expert one or two or three really practical things that you would recommend people do in their home or in their own personal lives to begin to reduce their energy and consumption and their emissions but I think we have to start with our limitations Mm -hmm. I live in a drafty cottage without um double glazing you know i'm probably heating half of wiltshire and you know that's awful and every so often i think to myself right i should move to a different place where i can you know live a more eco-conscious life but i also like living here because of the owls and the trees and the deer and the badgers and the foxes and So I think it's a constant dilemma about moving backwards and forwards between those things and making a conscious choice and recognizing, okay, I can't do anything about that. It's a rented cottage. I can't put in double glazing. It's a conservation area, but I can do something about this. So you can do look for where you can open the door and push on an open door or where you can take action. So that's number one. Move to cleaner forms of heating, move to energy conservation in your home where I can absolutely control the action I take is around how I consume the foods I buy, how often I go shopping, the choices I make about consumption. There I've got complete control. I've got no control over what happens in this house and I'm constantly dealing with it as a dilemma and not finding a perfect answer. Same with electric vehicles, same with travel, same with everything. We we are inheriting 
this world that we don't quite know how to navigate. So I want to go back to that point that I made at the beginning, that we need to learn. We need to have the hubris, the humility to learn. And then we have to just say we're doing our best to take care of the things that are important to me and the things that are important around us. One of those is to think of yourself in relationship to the planet. So as a psychotherapist, I work with individuals, I work with families and couples, but I no longer think of myself as just working with one person. I think of myself as working with a person and the planet. So bring that planetary consciousness into your home. Think to yourselves, and this might sound silly, but it actually works once you start to do it. Think, here's what I want. These are the biscuits I want. What would the planet want? What would be good for the planet? And then you can choose and you can choose to buy the biscuits you want to buy sometimes and then choose to buy the biscuits the planet might want you to buy sometimes. So try and it might sound silly, but try and move into relationships systemically. Like you're kind of personifying the planet. I'm exactly personifying the planet. That's exactly what I'm doing, because it's the loss of the awareness of that, particularly in the Western mind. This is partly what's got us into this mess in the first place, where we think we can monetize the environment where we think we can control everything and it's partly that egotistical position as well as the exploitation and the failure to see this climate anxiety is actually an expression of injustice things are not fair and we have to deal with that fairness and that fairness in the world needs to be dealt with politically and globally as well as locally. And all the ways in which you can do that and take action do matter. They do count. The other thing I would do is recognize that this is about storytelling. It's about learning to navigate this. And our children will thank us for this, about how we talk to them about what we're doing. And there's a really famous Michael Rosen story, uh, We're All Going on a Bear Hunt, which you may be I familiar have it. with. My son. Yeah, most most parents have this story. I mean, how can you not? It's uh I usually have my copy very close by, but it's not. So I really like this story as a way of thinking about how to navigate the climate crisis. This is a story of a family going off to have an adventure. And I want to minimize the awfulness of the climate crisis. But equally, it's something that we do need to think of as something that we need to face with courage and tell a story around. And they go off and they meet all these obstacles, don't they? They meet rivers of, and they have mud and they have grass. And every single time they reach it, they go, ah, oh, we can't go under it. We can't go over it. We can't get around it. We're going to have to go through it. That's the story of how we deal with the climate anxiety. We can't avoid it. We can't deny it. We're going to have to find a way through it. And by finding a way through it together, collectively, we can build that resilience and we can build that sense of community that can make it okay. So that's one of the stories I would use. The other story I would use is there's a story of parents walking on a beach one day with their children. There's been a big storm. And all these sea creatures are thrown up on the beach and some of them are dying and children are picking them up and throwing them back in. And the parents are getting a bit impatient because they want to get on with the walk, you know. And they turn around to the children and they say, oh, you can't make a difference. There's hundreds of them. And the children pick up one starfish 
and they look at their parents and they say, it made a difference to that one as they threw it back in the water. So you may only make a difference to one starfish. You may only make a difference to one bit of your environment, but that matters. It counts. Oh, wow. I, I'm just, I'm so grateful to Eon Next for connecting us because you have such a beautiful way of um, helping people relate to the planet and relate to themselves and their relationship with the planet and understand the anxiety that is very, just makes a lot of sense. It's not something we need to fix in ourselves. It's the it's the world and how we respond to it that needs the fixing or it needs at least the doing the best we can to prevent it from getting any worse. Um, your your stories and your examples and, and your analogies have been really, really helpful. And I've re- like, you've actually, I didn't think it was possible, but you have both managed to soothe the anxiety I was feeling about not feeling like I was doing enough before jumping on this conversation, but also really encouraged me to to like, I just love that idea of, when you're in the supermarket, okay, what do I want? What does the planet want? Because we're so, one thing we're so good at like, is having empathy and relating to each other and our common humanity. So if we can humanize the planet, then we have, I just think it's a much smoother, it's, a, it's less of an overhaul of your life then to make the choices and the decisions that will actually have the positive impact. And all of that, that, that combination of accept, radical acceptance plus significant, you know, your own significant actions will sort of soothe the the level of anxiety that's debilitating you because we don't like you say we don't want to get rid of the anxiety that's necessary for us to affect change so i can't thank you enough i've really enjoyed chatting to you and i hope you have enjoyed it too thank you for being here thank you so much and i've really enjoyed it and i'm so glad the stories were engaging so much so thank you Thank you so much to the brilliant Caroline Hickman for joining us this week on the podcast and thanks to Eon Next for partnering with us. Remember, you can find a whole range of audio tools that will help you rest and renew by searching Power Up for Change on your podcasting app. And also just take a listen to the mindfulness meditation tool in your feed right now for a taster. So now you're all powered up and ready to tackle eco-anxiety, I imagine you might feel like taking some action. So search hashtag power up for change or visit eonnext.com forward slash eco anxiety for more information. Until next time on Owning It The Anxiety Podcast, thank you so much for tuning in. The easiest way to access Owning It Real Time is to head to the link in the episode description or episode details, whatever you call them, show notes. You will find the link in there at the top. You can sign up right away for Owning It Real Time and access the full library of 10 situation-specific audio guides that will help you own your anxiety even more than you've ever done before.